So you can open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1 and then follow along as I tell this story and preach the Word of God. Randy Alcorn was a pastor in Portland, Oregon. In the late 1980s, so that was about the time I was born, 1982, so a while ago, uh, I'll be 36 in May. In the late 1980s, Randy and Nancy Alcorn were deeply impressed by the scriptures that talked about rescuing from death those being led to slaughter and about speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. As a result, they decided to work in a pregnancy center there in their hometown, which offered an alternative to abortion, life, and adoption, and other things. So they opened their home. They wanted to have a personal commitment. So they opened their home to several people. One was a pregnant teenage daughter. They basically adopted her as their daughter and helped the adoption of her child out of marriage to a family. And she trusted the Lord because of that. So this was a personal commitment. As their commitment grew and their lives became more and more committed to this cause, they decided they were going to join the board of the pregnancy center. In January of 1989, they decided that they could no longer stop making this just a personal commitment, and they decided to peacefully protest at abortion clinics in their town. Many others joined them across the U.S. during that month. As a result, he was arrested a couple of times, strip-searched, falsely accused of spitting on and hitting nurses, and screamed at by a judge in court even one time. Once, a jail nurse said that she hoped he was a murderer or a thief, but not an abortion protester because she really hated those people. (laughs) Yeah. As a result of those protests, one abortion clinic took him and his family to court and won a judgment against him and his family for $22,000 that he would have to pay out of his own pocket. How would you respond to that? What would you do? How would you react to God? How would you even prepare to make a decision about that? I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money for me. A lot of money. I think that's the big idea today from Joshua 1. How do we prepare to live life in a hostile culture? What would God have us do? What did he say to Joshua to prepare him to conquer the land? I think we're going to see three things. He told him to remember his call. And that's the first one. So if you look there at verses 1 through 5, we're going to talk about that first. I think God prepared Joshua for his task to conquer the land by reminding him of his promises and the call or the specific task God had on his life. Now, what promises would God need to remind Joshua of? Well, there are a few that aren't in this text. The first one is of his special relationship with Joshua and the people of God at that time. In Genesis chapter 17, we read that God says that he's going to establish a covenant between his people, if you remember that, and that he will be their God. He'll give them offspring, physical offspring, and spiritual, and a land. So that's the basis. That's the first promise that I think God wanted Joshua to remember in his life. Second, in Deuteronomy 31, God promised Joshua that he was going to be with him as the new leader. So this was beforehand. So this is kind of a rehashing in Joshua of God's promises 
beforehand to him. He said, I'll be with you wherever you go, and you'll lead my people. Another one that I found very interesting was in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. And this is what it says. God gave a spirit of wisdom to Joshua, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Very interesting. God's spirit, his very presence was with him to do his task. I think also God promised greatness to Joshua here in chapter 1. If you look at verse 5, there are two things that God said he was going to prepare Joshua to conquer the land with. A reminder, what was it? In verse 5 he says, as with Moses. Now that's really important. What do we know about Moses? Is he some average Joe? No. This was a man who God spoke with face to face. This was a man who did miracles, right? He held up a staff and the Red Sea parted. He led God's people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. This is a man who is great. And God said, in the same way, I'm going to be with you to Joshua. That must have been really reassuring, right? Finally, I think in chapter 1, verse 5, we see that. He says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'll always be at your side. In fact, before that, he said, wherever you put your foot, right? Whatever place of land that your foot steps on, I'll give it to you. Joshua was prepared by God to conquer the land by his promises. And actually, another interesting thought I had about this was his name. Many of you probably know what his name means, but by way of reminder, it means God is salvation. God saves. And actually, the shortened form of Joshua is Jesus, who saved his people, us, from our sin. And so almost in a funny, weird way, his name is actually a reminder of God's promise and call on his life. Now, briefly, I want to talk about what's the big deal about the land? Why was that so important to them? Well, check this out. If you had been wandering in a desert for 40 years, I think you'd want to settle down too, right? They had been walking around the desert for 40 stinking years. And they're going to finally get to settle down in a place to call home. Man, I've never been homeless for a day in my life, let alone 40 years. So I think there's rest. And the Bible actually talks about that in Hebrews. It says that they entered their rest, physically speaking. So that's the first part of it that I think we need to know about the land. This is, Physically speaking, it's just like, hey, finally we get to have some land and look forward to that. The second thing is, I think the land, and a lot of commentators pick up on this as well, is a tangible representative of God's covenant promise to them. It's a piece of something that they can say, hey, God has been faithful to me in my life. That's what it was for the Israelites. That was the deal of the land. That was why it was so important to them. Then I guess the question came to mind as I was preparing, why did Joshua need reminding of God's promises? Why does anyone need reminding of God's promises? Wait, life is just peachy, right? We're great. There's no trouble. No, that's not true. Life following God is hard. These were uncertain times for Joshua, weren't they? First of all, it's interesting how God comes to Joshua. He doesn't mince words. He's like, look, the greatest guy that's ever led this nation, he's dead. Too bad. Sorry. You're in charge now. There's a change of leadership. 
These are uncertain times. How will the people react? Think about in your life when jobs change, when bosses change, when friends change. This is a huge time of uncertainty for not only Joshua, but the people of Israel. And it's also interesting how God speaks to them. He's like, look, Moses is dead. Get up. Go into the land. Stop messing around. That's his charge right there. In verse 1 and 2, we can see that these are uncertain times. With getting up with change, there's uncertainty, isn't there? We feel that in our lives as well. And I'm sure Joshua did. And so God reminded him of his promises. Reminded him of his presence. To be with Joshua, to never abandon him. And I think that's true of all time for God's people. And that would include you guys and me and our families who trust in Christ. God prepares his people for difficult times, hostile environments, by reminding us of his promises. He says, remember who I am and what I will be for you in those hard times. What promises do we have in God's word? What are the things that we should cling to? I think almost cliche, the first one we must say, mustn't we, is that everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. No doubt. Famously, even at football games, John 3.16 is everywhere. Still, in our culture, it says this, for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That eternal life is just being with God, away from sin in His presence forever. That's one promise that we can count on. Another one is that God chose us for a reason. Our lives are not purposeless. And in this culture, that's a big deal. We have meaning and purpose in life because we are God's chosen children. John fifteen sixteen says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. We talked about Ephesians 2 here in the prayer time as Paul opened even. Why did God save us? For a purpose. So that we might bear fruit. So that we might do good works in our life. That's the purpose of our salvation. That's why He called us. In Jesus, finally, one of the best promises to me is that we have obtained an inheritance. Haven't we? He's adopted us into His family. Everything that Jesus gets, we get. Presence forever with Him. 1 Peter 1 says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Moth, moths, rust, corruption, car accidents. Nothing will stop that inheritance from happening. You and I, if we trust in Christ, are God's children. Daughters and sons of the only true king. That's one of the promises that keeps me going. So back to Randy Alcorn for a second. How was he prepared? Did he remember his call? How would how did he respond to this $22,000 uh, court judgment in his family? Well, he ended up refusing to pay. He said, I will not give money to those who murder children, in his words. And I would agree. So in April of 1990, because he refused to give that money to them, the court ordered his church to send a quarter of his income to the abortion clinic itself. Now, still convinced that this was God's call, he remembered his call, 
That's what I'm talking about, remembering your call. He resigned from his pastor's position to stop them from having to make a hard choice. He said, my call to be faithful to following Jesus is more important than what I do in this life, my job. It's more important than making sure that my family is well taken care of. God will do it. He remembered his call and that it was greater than his job. I guess that's my my first charge to us today. Remember your call. Remember it. We have to be prepared in this life for a hostile culture because make no mistake about it, the people of God have always lived in a hostile culture. Joshua did. You will. It's not any worse today than it was a 100 years ago in one sense. It's always hostility. To name the name of Jesus will bring persecution. No doubt. I think there are two ways we can remember our call. Number one, and these are just very practical. Spend a few minutes this week just remembering when you were saved. Remembering the first time you met Jesus and felt his presence in your life. That sweetness will sustain you for a long time. I did that last night here, late, praying about this sermon. I just remembered the first time that I really said, yeah, you're my Lord and my Savior. And there were tears in my eyes. I pray it's that way for you. To be prepared for this hostile culture, you must remember your encounter with the Lord Jesus. And not only the first time, but how about remembering then also the milestones in your life? I remember a few of them. One was my brother in the car one day when I was working at Arby's being an idiot. He's like, look, what you're doing is not right of a follower of Jesus. That was a milestone in my life, and God used that. I remember many other times in my life. How about you? Can you remember the milestones in your life? Many of you have amazing testimonies, but each one who is saved by God's grace has amazing testimony, not only of what God did, but what he is doing right now. Remember God's work in your life to be prepared in a hostile culture. If we forget, we will not persevere in the faith. That's a guarantee. And that's what God said to Joshua. Remember, and remember that God has put you where you are for a reason. Remember your call in every context. 1 Corinthians 10, to sum up that, says this, whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Remember your call so that you might live in that way. So, when we remember our call, we'll be prepared for life in a hostile culture. That was his charge to Joshua and to us, to remember our call. But now that God has reminded Joshua of his task and his call to take the land, reminding of his promises, how was he going to conquer the land and go about fulfilling the promises of God? How would he do that, and how will you do that in your life? I think the first thing that we can see right here in the text is that he had to be a certain type of person. What is God's charge to him right there? Be courageous. I want to form you into a courageous person. Be brave and strong. And let me tell you, it's a pretty scary world out there right now. A lot of craziness is going on for followers of Jesus and and others alike. Let me tell you what I think the biggest fear right now of our generation is, something that scares me even to the core. What if you posted a pic on Instagram or Facebook and no one liked it? How would you feel? Man, I would be scared. Devastated, that's right. Devastated, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, everyone has to like me. No one likes my kids! Oh, no! 
Was I not in the right outfit, right? Was I not doing the right things with my friends? Did they not like the park I went to? Whatever. Seriously, though, (laughs) there are things to be afraid of. Joshua was prepared to conquer the land by God by a command to be brave and strong. Now, why did Joshua need to be brave? Why did he need to be strong? Well, I'll reiterate that following God is never easy. It's never easy. We have wrong expectations. We think life is going to be peachy. To use an antiquated term. It's going to be great, but it's not. And it wasn't for Joshua. Why did he need to be brave? Well, let's be brutally honest. God commanded him to make war. And in war, there are casualties. And in war, there is suffering. But I think also we must remember God is calling us to war into the territory of the enemy, and he does the same things for us. He says, be strong, be brave. Followers of Jesus have always lived in a world that has many challenges to our faith. In fact, Satan rules the world right now under the authority of God, yes, but God has given him control in many ways of this world. Look at Job. He killed his whole family. God allowed that. Not only that, but I think we face an enemy that's just as insidious, but it lurks closer, even within our very heart. Our hearts are enemy territory sometimes, aren't they? Whether it's our natural man who hates the things of God, or we've allowed by our actions Satan to come in and dominate a part of our lives, our hearts can be enemy territory, harboring all kinds of opposition to God's work. We need much bravery, not only outside in the world, but inside to face the reality of our soul. May God grant it to us this weekend for as long as he has us on this earth. I think that illustrative of a flashlight is really good, and I think it's relevant to this land, conquering of the land in Joshua's story. Because in the book by Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within, he talks about God's Holy Spirit like a flashlight. And when we think we've cleaned an area of our house, the light is on, maybe it's like a corner with a chair or something, and we've cleaned the house for visitors, they drop something on the floor, and someone gets out, you know, their iPhone with that, like, super bright light, right? I want to show you. It's, like, bright. You can't even look at it, right? And they look under there, and what's the first thing they see? Maybe it's, like, a dead cockroach or something, right? Some dust bunnies, I don't know, some toenails. Sick, Right? But listen, it's the same way in our lives. When God gets the Holy Spirit out and goes to work on our hearts, all kinds of depravity come to light and we need to be brave and strong in the Lord. Just like Joshua would have to do in the land. He called them into enemy territory to initiate a physical war. And when that happens, there are temptations from within and without. What are some of those that Joshua faced in the land? Well, in chapter 7, they lost a battle. It wasn't the first city that they failed to take. It was the second one. Yeah, they got Jericho. But the second time God asked them to take a city, they lost. It was I. And why did they lose? Because Achan sinned. There was sin in the community of people that were following God. He took some things from Jericho, put them under his tent, and didn't tell anyone about it. You know what happened? God caused him to lose. He ferreted out that sin like a flashlight in the life of the community, didn't he? And at that point, Joshua 
even questioned God. He's like, God, where are you? We lost the battle. What's wrong? You know what God says then? He says, get up. Stop crying about it in one sense and repent. Be courageous and strong, he said in chapter 7. In chapter 9, some people came to him dressed up and deceived him. They even put some poop on him and tried to deceive him and said, hey, protect us. And they actually succeeded in deceiving him. And a couple of chapters later, in fact, right away, actually, they drew him into war. There was deception. There was hardship. There was sin. And finally, in chapter 24, it's interesting, we get a hint of what's going on. Basically, in chapter 24, we see that Israel had been kind of on the border of trusting God in other things. He says, look, for this whole time you've trusted in other things as well. I know that. And you won't be able to keep God's law on your own. There was lots of brokenness in that land. Just a couple of things that they were going to encounter. Child sacrifice. People in that land, to get God, as if he wanted that, his favor, gave up their children and burned them. Because they wanted security. Because it was dangerous. Life is dangerous, so they gave up their kids. There was sexual impurity of every kind. The religions there were full of it. You want to commune with God? Have sex with someone. Basically what they did. There was temptation over there to run because there were giants. Literally, people like Goliath live there. Stronger, braver, humanly speaking, trained with armor. That's dangerous. I know when I play football against someone or whatever, the first thing I do is, hey, can I take this guy? If I'm like, no, I'm like, okay, I need to be careful. They had no human chance of beating these guys. And there was a temptation to turn back. So how did Joshua become brave and strong? I think it needs to be said that he was cultivating bravery and strength his whole life up until this point. And this was just a reiteration of God to him to do it more. First, I think that his bravery and strength equated to faith in God. Strength in the inner man. Maybe there was some training with a sword and shield. When you're fighting giants, how much of that can really help you, right? It was faith in God. Now, one of the guys at our Wednesday breakfast said that he thinks Joshua is like an old coot, an old spiritual funny guy that everyone is like, what is this guy up to? And I think that's true, and I think there's something we can think about here from our culture. I think he's like the Yoda of Scripture. I I think... He was the wise old guy. And you can just hear him saying, "Mm, Young Israelites, cross the Jordan you must. With you always, God will be. Right? Can you hear him saying that? (laughs) Hopefully better than that. Right? But think about it. He's the Yoda. And actually, maybe that's some of you. Some of you in this body are of the age of wisdom and have much to offer those below your age. I think it's him. Let me demonstrate why. In Numbers 13, he's younger. And what does he do? He believes God promised when 90% of the people around him didn't. In Numbers 14, he stayed with God and his man Moses through a stinking rebellion. Have you ever stood with someone through rebellion? I haven't. It must be difficult. It must require faith in God that you're doing the right thing when nine of your friends and relatives rebel and are killed, actually. 
they were killed. It must require faith to do that. And then in Numbers 26, it must have required bravery and courage and faith when he saw every single person over the age of 40, by the end of their wandering, die. Every person died because they rebelled against God. You think it would take faith to, to walk through and continue on? I think it would. I think he was strong and brave at that time too. Second, so he's strong and brave by his faith exercise for a long time in a lot of hard situations. I think second, he learned from the best person, Moses. Here's a man who Joshua purposefully attached himself to. What does it say in verse 1 of Joshua 1? It says he was Moses' servant. And actually, that that word is only used one time, I think, in the entire Old Testament. And it means a special kind of servant. He saw someone he wanted to be like, and he went and learned from that man. I think there are discipleship principles from us. Want to be brave and strong? Learn from someone in the body. You want to persevere? You want to have great faith? It's not going to happen in a vacuum. You won't do it alone. Go find someone to learn from and serve them. Don't just ask them to serve you. Serve them. Learn in the battle together. I think God prepares us for service and difficult times for our call by changing our character to one from fear and doubt to faith and courage. He moves us from guilt and gratitude. Yeah, I said gratitude. To grace as a motivation by faith in Christ for the Christian life. I don't think guilt or gratitude are sufficient. I think it has to be faith in the future promises of God. Because if he's not going to do tomorrow what he did yesterday, why would I follow him at all? That's not the kind of God we have, though. We must trust in his future promises to us so that we can be courageous. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything? We cannot have no faith and shrink back in difficult times in a hostile culture. If we do, we prove that we aren't God's children at all. And Joshua stands as an example for all people of God for all time of those who do not shrink back and are brave and courageous, just like Jesus Christ. The Scriptures say that Jesus set His face like flint to Jerusalem, knowing that He would be crucified, knowing that every person around Him, just like Joshua's life earlier, would abandon Him. Even His closest disciples betrayed Him on that night, Peter included. And yet, He was strong and courageous. Despite the physical and emotional pain he would go through, he did the task that God called him to because he believed that God would raise him from the dead and redeem a people for himself. He believed his heavenly father. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not simply one of the virtues. It's not one of them, but the form of every virtue at the testing point in our lives. Faith, hope, love, and every single Christian virtue that God wants you to have find their expression in courage when times get hard. So if we're a coward, we're evidencing that we don't believe what God says is what I'm trying to tell you. God brings us into conflict to squeeze something out of us. He wants to squeeze it. Like my daughter with her little pouch of applesauce. She wants the last drop. God wants the last drop. What's going to come out? Is it going to be faith and courage or cowardice and doubt? 
God wants it to be courage for you by trusting in his promises. So Randy Alcorn, as a result of his decision to quit his job, he got a minimum wage job because that was the only job that they wouldn't take money from. It made his life harder. It made his family's life harder and brought many hardships through public hate. Hate mail, calls, all of it. People even spitting on him. However, he said he was glad to do it. And in February of 1991, two years after he resigned, they had a major court case. And in a crazy turn of events, the night before the trial, his lawyer was told that the clinic wanted to drop the suit against him. It turns out that because of his publicity, they thought that they would be better off without him, right? But he decided to pray with his family. And he asked them what he should do. His nine-year-old daughter, in the mouth of a child, his nine-year-old daughter said this, You know what, Daddy? The abortion clinic thinks they're better off without you. I think God wants you there. So he went. He refused to be dropped from the suit. What happened? Well, he lost the judgment. And instead of $22,000, they put an $8.2 million garnishment of his wages for 10 years on him. How, how would you think about that? Was that the right decision? What do you think God wanted to do with that? He formed a courageous character by prayer, by trusting that God had the best for him, and we should too. I think there are many temptations in this world. We live in uncertain times too. We will make decisions based out of fear or faith. There's fear of abandonment. There's fear of the unknown, the unexplored. There's fear of not knowing enough. Fear of our kids turning out just like the world and rebelling. Fear of losing our job and not having enough money to provide. Fear of getting a job if you're in master's degree and you're looking in this job market. There's many fears. We ask, but how will you do it, God? In what way will you do it? We want to know everything, but God says to us, be brave and strong. Trust in my promises for you to provide. I think that Certainly one of the ways that we can leave a legacy of courage to our children is to be engaged regularly in courageous acts. It's not enough to speak courageously. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Here are some things that it might be. Having a hard conversation with your mom or dad about your internet usage. That is an act of bravery. Or as a mom and dad, having a conversation with your kids about their internet usage. Giving away a TV or computer because of sin. Or giving to God and his people lavishly so much that it might even hurt. I think those and many others can be seen as ways in which we exercise faith in a hostile culture and build a legacy of courage for our body here, and for our children. So when we build courage and act courageously, we'll be prepared for this fight, a battle in a hostile world. Finally, what was to be the source of Joshua's courage? How was he to become courageous? Well, we prepare for life in a hostile culture by communing with God. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me in the text. What does it say there? says he was to meditate on the law. He was to speak it in order that he might, what? Do it. Those things are what I would call communing with God. He prepared him to conquer the land by rooting his life in obedience to the word 
I actually find this statement quite comical. I think God's got a little bit of a sense of humor here. And he's working the way he always does in an upside-down world. He's like, hey, hey, listen, you want to go conquer this land with giants in it? Go read my book. Does that sound like anything else? Hey, you want to go kill that giant over there? You don't need any armor. Just get a sling. Hey, you want to love Jesus more? Die to yourself. God's solution for courage is to root yourself in obedience to his word. Nothing else. And commune with him. And so Joshua is supposed to do that. He's supposed to speak the law to other people in his interactions with others. As the leader, he's supposed to, the word meditate actually means something like this. He's supposed to murmur it to himself. He's supposed to actually kind of like this. One good good friend who used to go here said, don't listen to yourself, preach to yourself. You have to know the word to be able to preach to yourself, right? That's what I think is going. He said, speak it to others, speak it to yourself. Why? Why was he to do that? Verse 8 so that he could be careful to do everything written in it. I love the way Francis Chan illustrates this. My brother's up there, and we joke about this often. He says, if I tell my kids to go clean their room, and they come back and say something like this, hey, Dad, I know that my room is about 20 feet by 30 feet. I've measured it. I'm sure of that. Here are my recordings. In fact, I have a red truck in the corner that's about six inches long that makes awesome fire engine sounds. Uh, I know that my bed has three sheets on it and that one of them is pulled back right now in a mess. And I've even, listen, I've even learned Chinese because I want to know the dangers on that tag because I know all my toys are made in China, right? Sorry, if that offends anyone, right? Now, what am I going to say to him? What am I going to do? Did he clean his room if that was my son or yours? No, he learned all about it and did nothing of what I asked him to do. Do we do we think we fool God when we do it that same way? If we do not do what is written in his law, we are just like that kid. But the doing here really is believing God and knowing him. It's communing with him. That's the do. Know me so that you might be courageous be able to accomplish the task in a hostile culture. You will know God better through his self-revelation in the Bible. You will know God better when you experience him in your obedience. There's nothing like living out the faith and coming to the word in humility and being encouraged and worshiping Jesus. We'll miss out if we don't experience that. In fact, we won't even really know God at all. It's the truth. And... We'll know God better by being with his people. You. We are encouraged by the body of Christ. So as a result of what Randy Alcorn did, he had to rid himself of all of his assets. He gave away his car. He gave away his home. He gave away all of his savings. And he even signed over his royalty rights to his books, to charities. Because if he hadn't, they would have taken it all. Funny thing happened, though. His book sales took off. And went through the roof. They became bestsellers. His family grew spiritually. They began to experience the love of Christ like never before. Instead of tearing his family apart, it brought them together. Ten years later, though, something interesting happened. Ring, ring, ring. 
the publishers call and say, well, it's 10 years after the injunction. We think you deserve that money. We'd like you to take those royalties again. And we, we think you've earned it. What would you do? What do you think would be the right decision? Well, since he communed with God, I think he would know the answer to that, and he did. I'll give you at the end here real quick. But there are threats to communion with God in our life. We're not in a perfect world. Even our own bodies fight us. It's hard to stay awake reading the Bible instead of watching Star Trek on Netflix. I'm right there with you. I'm no better. It's hard to stand up for the faith in a hostile world. It's hard to live it out. But we can do it. We just need a better diet, don't we? Which one of you would run a marathon without training first? Where's Lenny? He's run one. Where's Al? He's run one. How stupid do you think that is? People die from that, right? No joke, they actually die. (laughs) Would you enter into the Navy SEAL training program right now? I know I wouldn't. Why, Why would we expect that? Why do we think that's funny? And then we expect to live out our faith courageously and we're not rooting our lives in obedience to God and His Word. We can do this. I think a good suggestion, a practical application for this point is, and I know it's blessed my brother and I and other people I've talked to, instead of worrying about how much we read in the Word, let's read one paragraph this week and be careful to do everything it says. Let's meditate on it. Let's speak it to ourselves and others. Let's pray through it. Let's memorize it. Let's share it with our children and our grandparents. Let's talk about it. And let's try to do everything that is asked of God in that paragraph. I think that God would meet us there and He would radically change our lives through just one paragraph. When we commune with God, we are prepared for life in a hostile culture, just like Joshua was. So I've asked you guys to prepare today for life in a hostile culture by remembering God's call in your life. I've asked you to prepare for life in a hostile culture by forming a courageous character, one of faith and not fear. I've asked you to prepare for life in a hostile culture by communing with God, rooting your life in obedience to the Word. I think there are probably three kinds of people here today. Some who aren't prepared for that life because they've never communed with God at all in His Son, Jesus Christ. To that person, to those people, I would say, read John 3.16. Just do it. Against your, even maybe even your better judgment, open a Bible and read John 3.16 because there's a promise of life for you in that. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. Some aren't prepared at all and will not endure because... They aren't regularly exercising courage and communing with God. It's just like weightlifting, just like training for a marathon. Do you think you'll show up and be courageous in the moment? You won't. You're not ready. To you, I say, commune with Him. See His sweetness, just like He commanded Joshua to do. Some are doing it regularly, and I rejoice in your walk of faith. Continue on, because you know what? It's not going to be easier. Your bodies will fall apart. Maybe your knees won't work. I I seem to work with a lot of guys whose backs hurt a lot. Physical life will get harder. Our culture is not getting any better. Press on. Continue by faith. 
because the fight will not get easier. Randy Alcorn was prepared for life in a hostile culture. He told that publisher, after praying with his family and his wise daughters again, I won't do it. He said, you keep it. God has blessed my work. You take those proceeds and bless those charities. I'm free. And good thing he did. Because two to three months later, that abortion clinic went back, got another judgment of ten more years at the same price because they'd never received a dime. He could stand courageously because he knew his Lord. He remembered his call. And he was walking faithfully with a courageous character. You pray with me that God would do that in our lives today. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to root our obedience in Christ, Lord. He is our treasure. He is our inheritance forever. May we live this life in faith, not fear. I just pray that you would do that for me and that you would help us all in this church to live courageously for you, just like Joshua was called to do, despite difficulty. Jesus is our only hope. It's to him we say thank you and we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.